all of us have traditions. Some of those traditions you started when you were a child and they have continued now to adulthood. Some of those traditions you put away and you've started new traditions with your family. But all of us have traditions that we, we look to uphold year after year at this particular time. One of my personal, this is a personal tradition of mine, uh, I've been doing this for probably the last, I would say, 17, 18 years now. Some of you know that for years I used to collect Department 56 Christmas Village items. Um, the particular one that I have is Christmas in the City, and uh, I have been collecting them since Kathy and I first got married, just one piece at a time, and and some people have given me them for, the, uh, for Christmas gifts through the years. And uh, I stopped collecting them a few years ago because the collection just got too big. I had nowhere else to put it. And uh, also because it got a little costly. It would almost have been cheaper for me to build a house than to keep doing the Department 56. But I love uh, the Christmas village. My mother always put one up, and I always wanted to do it myself. So... Every year I put up my Christmas village. Not always all the pieces, there's just so many, but I always put up at least some of them. And what I do is I wait till the Friday or the Saturday after Thanksgiving to set it up. And I get down in the basement by myself and I put on, and I know how many of you know this, the holiday classic Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Anybody seen that here? Okay, I, it's not my favorite, but one year, maybe 17 years ago, I actually had it on when I was putting up the village, and I liked it so much that now I went out and bought it, and so every year I put that in and I set up my village to the Holiday Inn, and that's what really gets me going for the Christmas season. Now that's a personal tradition that I started, like I said, 17, 18 years ago. But we have several traditions in our family that we try to honor year after year. And one of those, and again, I'm not going to tell you that we do it every year, but one that we have is at some point during the Christmas season, we will all sit down as a family and we will watch It's a Wonderful Life. Any takers on It's a Wonderful Life? How many of you love George Bailey? Okay, we we love that. What's ironic is that the first time that Kathy and I saw it, which was our first year of marriage, we were over at someone's house around the Christmas season, and they said, you have never seen this, you've got to watch it. We sat down and we watched it, and i got to tell you, we were less than unimpressed. I mean, it was just not registering. This family was crazy about It's a Wonderful Life, and we went away just saying, I don't know if I really understand this. It just didn't really click. And then I would say probably 20 years ago, we watched it again And for whatever reason, we were older, we were wiser, we just really loved it. And ever since, we have sat down and watched it. Even Josh and Amanda started really liking that. And that's saying something, because if it's black and white, they don't want to watch anything. In fact, if it's not Marvel and a superhero is not blowing up a city, then it's not a movie. I mean, that's just their, that's their idea of a great movie. But even they like It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I 
saw a lot of hands that went up, and I'm assuming that most of you have seen it, but there may be some of you that have never seen It's a Wonderful Life. I'm not going to go through the whole movie, but let me just highlight what it's about. Typically, you recognize the story as centering around a man named George Bailey, and George Bailey has lived a selfless life all of his days. In fact, all throughout the movie, you see him sacrificing his dreams and his aspirations for the dreams and the aspirations of those around him. And the intent was always that once their dreams and their aspirations were fulfilled, that they would come back and let George off so that he could go and chase his dreams, that he could build the skyscrapers and the airfields and cities and buildings, and that he could you know, travel the world. That was his dream. And so the intent was that everybody would come back and relieve him of his responsibilities and allow him to chase his dreams. But unfortunately, with every passing year, his family got bigger, his ties to the community and the family became stronger and deeper, and his dreams flickered away. And finally, one night, when he is just absolutely at the end of his rope in total despair he contemplates suicide there is angelic intervention and george bailey is given a rare opportunity to see what the world would be like had he never been born and he comes to the conclusion at this moment that he actually had a wonderful life and then in true hollywood fashion They all gather together, family and friends, and George gets everything back. Everything that was taken and stolen came back to him. Everybody just parties around, ringing in Christmas with old anxiety, and everything works out beautifully in the end, and as we often say, they all lived happily ever after. Heartwarming, tearjerker, it'll warm your heart. Unfortunately, it's not true. I mean, look, let's be honest. Rarely, if ever, does life ever work out that neatly. Even when things work out, there's always residual damage that is left. Rarely does it all work out that way. Can we just be honest? And again, I know some of you have never seen the movie, but let's be honest. Sometimes George doesn't come home from the bar. And sometimes Mary doesn't want George to come home. And sometimes the kids grow up resenting mom and dad. And sometimes bad men win. And good men lose. And sometimes there are no angels to intervene. Sometimes lives are lost. Sometimes lives are taken. Because life is hard. Life can be extremely cruel. And at Christmas, oftentimes that pain is accentuated and it's intensified amidst the carols and the cards, the trees and the tinsel, and the glitter and the gold. Jesus told us that there is a wolf, a thief, that has come for no other reason but to steal, to kill, and destroy. 
Follow with me for a moment that pathology of the enemy. It's not enough that he has come to steal. He wants to kill and he wants to ultimately destroy. The idea there of destruction is that it could never be revived. And that is the enemy. He is not content in just stealing. He wants to kill and utterly destroy any opportunity to be revived again. But in the great exchange, Jesus goes on to say, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Hallelujah. Jesus did not come just to give us life. He came to give us life that is abundant for the glory of God. I can tell you life isn't wonderful, but His life is abundant. The Word of God tells us that that word abundant means over and above. It means more than what is needed. It means extraordinary. It even means uncommon. And that's the kind of life that Jesus came to give. He came to give you a life that is over and above your wildest imaginations. He came to give you a life that is more than necessary, an extraordinary life, an uncommon life. And I will stand here today and tell you, at least on my part, that I have seen His wonderful life in me. His life has taken this man to places he never thought he'd go, to do things he never thought he would or could do. His life has blessed this man with a mom and a dad, with a brother, with a precious wife, with a son, a daughter, and a daughter-in-law. He has given to me uh, brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws and cousins. And one day, 23 years ago, and I'm still wrapping my head around this, God brought me to Bethel and gave me the most wonderful church to call a family in Jesus' mighty name. But above all that, His life has given me salvation. It has given me deliverance. It has given me healing. And it has given me the assurance that even when I die, I will have everlasting life in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. No, life hasn't been easy. Life has been cruel. Life has sometimes been upsetting. But His life is wonderful. And if you know what I'm talking about today, give Him all the praise in this house this morning. Come on. How many of you know God has been good to you? Amen. You know, when we think of Christmas, when we think of Thanksgiving, I would even include Easter on that list. Those more special and intimate holidays on our calendar, for better or worse, family immediately comes to mind. You cannot think of Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter without immediately thinking of the family. I mean, when you sit down to plan out your schedule, family inevitably comes up, for better or worse. And I say for better or for worse, because depending on your past, thoughts and memories of your family may be very heartwarming, but they also may be very heartbreaking. Some of you have nothing but fond memories of your family, others painful and hurtful ones. But regardless to where you are on that spectrum, I don't think that there is anyone here this morning that would in any way argue or try to diminish the very powerful impact that family has upon each and every one of us. In the April 30th edition of the New Yorker magazine, the headline read, Japan's Rent a Family Industry. And in it, it tells a story of a company in Japan that is called Family Romance, where lonely men and women 
can actually rent for a designated time a member of the family that they would like to be with. Whether that is a wife, a husband, a mother, a father, a son or a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, an aunt, an uncle, cousins, whatever it might be. Now understand something. I know it sounds a little bizarre to you, but understand that these are all actors and actresses. There's nothing sexual about it at all. It's all platonic, though there have been some relationships that have developed over this. But these are actors and actresses who are hired to come in and play the part of families for lonely men and lonely women. Their aim is to provide companionship for those who are struggling. In fact, the the story revolves around a man whose wife had died and who also shortly thereafter had experienced a falling out with his only daughter. And he was so tired of coming home to an empty house and having no one to share the time with, that he reached out to family romance and hired a woman to act as his wife and a girl to act as his daughter. They come over, they have dinner together, they watch TV, they play games together. Again, nothing beyond that, but it's just the idea, you play the part of my wife, you play the part of my daughter, so I don't have to be alone. No matter how you feel about that, what it does show is how desperate men and women are for family. And the great lengths that men and women will actually go to obtain that connection that only family can bring. And lest you think that that's not important, that that family is not that important, what is interesting to me and always has been is that the New Testament actually opens up with an introduction to the family of Jesus Christ. Of all the ways that the New Testament could open up, it actually opens up introducing us to the family line of Jesus Christ. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel wasn't even the first one written, and yet the Holy Spirit inspired the hearts of men and women to put it first, so the moment you turn over to the New Testament, the very first thing you and I are introduced to is the family Of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Matthew chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. A descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim. And his brothers born at the time of the exile Babylon. 
After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. Abiad was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph and the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. (laughs) Wasn't that exhilarating? (laughs) Most of you have probably thought, has Pastor Kurt lost his mind that he would read the genealogy of Jesus on the very first Sunday of December? I mean, let's just be honest. Those of you who read the Bible on a regular basis... That reading the Word of God is a part of your personal devotion. What happens when you come to genealogies like that? Skip right over them. Come on. Be honest. Come on. Tell me. Very few of us ever sit down and read it. You look and you just think, well, I don't need to know that. And you just skip right on ahead. Some of you have never read the book of Numbers for that very reason. It's like, why do I need all this information? Because it seems useless to us. But... There are some wonderful things about the genealogy. Wonderful things about the ancestry of Jesus Christ. Not the least of which being that it actually reveals that Jesus was in the royal line and could claim to be the Messiah. Because the very first thing that any Jewish critic would have had against the claim that someone was the Messiah would be, can that individual trace his family lineage back to Abraham and more specifically to King David? Because the Old Testament prophecies had made it very clear that he would come from Abraham but specifically would be a descendant from the line of King David. So even though Joseph was not... Jesus' biological or blood father, he certainly would have been his legal father having adopted Jesus as his own. And the Bible makes it very clear that Joseph was a descendant from Abraham and was in the line of King David, which means that Jesus certainly was in line to be the Messiah. And that is very important, and I do not want to minimize that at all. In fact, that is the primary reason that records were kept, so that we could trace Jesus' line back to Abraham and to King David. But there are other things that are very telling about this ancestry that cannot be overlooked. And maybe they're not spelled out there, but they are certainly there for us to observe. For instance, in reading the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you recognize that no matter how attacked, God still loves the family. No matter how attacked, God still loves the family. How many of you believe that God still loves the family? Ooh, can I hear a better amen? Considering the days that we live in, how many of you know God still loves the family? 
And, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that every time that I read the genealogy of Christ. The culture we live in may be attacking the family and marriage as we know it, may even be trying to redefine marriage and family in its own image. But family and marriage was God's idea from the beginning. It is still God's idea today. And there could no, be no greater stamp of approval on the family than God sending His only begotten Son into a family His own. You know, if not for all the prophecies in the Old Testament that had to be fulfilled, and we know that, but if not for those prophecies that had to be filled, Jesus could have shown up, He could have just arrived as an adult. I mean, think about it. There's no reason that one day he couldn't have just shown up at John the Baptist's baptism and be baptized and come out of the water and the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He could have gone on to live a sinless life and perform the miracles and fulfilled the work of the Messiah. There's no reason that I can see outside of the prophecies why he couldn't have just existed, just been here. God could have made him fully man, but instead he brought him into a family. He was born, spent the first 30 and a half years of his life growing up in a family just to remind us that God has always approved a family and it has always been his intent that family would carry the good news of Christ from one generation to the next in Jesus' mighty name. Well, I would take it even a little further, though, and I would say that his ancestry actually highlights the role of the father. How many dads do we have here today? Let me see your hands, dads, okay? Listen, I believe that the ancestry of Christ highlights the role that you play in the family. Think about it. Technically speaking, because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Joseph was not necessary. He was not necessary to God's plan. He was dealing with Mary exclusively. In fact, when we are first introduced to Joseph, Joseph is ready to write a bill of divorcement with Mary and just let her go on with his life. He'll go on with his life. And if God thought that Joseph was not important, he would have just said, good riddance, man. You just get out of town. We don't need you anyway. But so important to God the Father was an earthly father for his only son that he actually sent an angel to intervene and to convince Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife because that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. He said, Joseph, you need to be a part of this as well because God still believes in fatherhood. Dad, don't let the world tell you that your part in the family is not important. God made you and he even gave his son to a family that had a dad in Jesus' mighty name. No, God loves the family. And it may be under attack, and it may not be perfect, it may be a little dated, it may even be a little dinged up, but God still loves the family, and it's still worth fighting for, in Jesus' mighty name. Can I hear a good amen out of that today? The second thing I see when I look at the ancestry of Jesus Christ is that no matter how long it takes, God always keeps His promises. I don't want you to ever grow weary because no matter how long it takes, God always keeps His promises. You know, from the very first promise of a Redeemer given in the Garden of Eden in the wake of man's rebellion against God, mankind had been watching and anticipating, longing for the coming Messiah. 
For 4,000 years, man sat in darkness waiting to see the light shine. You know, in your Bible, the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, there are 127 messianic prophecies concerning 3,000 verses. With 547 of those verses dealing directly with a personal Messiah. Now certainly I'm not going to go through every messianic prophecy, but let me just give you a sampling. For instance, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the very first messianic prophecy that was given, we are told specifically that the Messiah will be born of the seed of woman. Now that's important because that actually is a veiled reference to the virgin birth of the Messiah because women do not have seed. Women have seed eggs. Men have seed. And yet it tells us that the Messiah is going to be born of the seed of a woman. In other words, he was telling us right there in the garden that the Messiah is coming supernaturally by the power of God. But also in Genesis 3 and verse 15, we are told that the Messiah, his heel is going to be bruised, but the head of the serpent will be crushed, which is exactly what Jesus did upon the cross. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 3, we are told that he will come from the line of Abraham. In Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2, we're told that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 7 and verse 14, it tells us again that he will be born of a virgin. And in Isaiah 53 and verse 5, it even tells us that the Messiah will die of crucifixion, which would not be invented for hundreds of years after the very prophecy prophecy was given. And so these prophecies were there and they were meant to be signs to the Israelites that the Messiah was coming. But sometimes the promises were forgotten. And sometimes it seemed as if it would be impossible for those promises to be fulfilled. Especially when Israel was divided and to the north was Israel and to the south was Judah. And then especially when they went into the Babylonian captivity and the Israelites were scattered. No nation had ever come back and And so they thought there's no way that the prophecy could be fulfilled. But one day, God sent an angel to a little girl named Mary and said, Mary, fear not, for you are highly favored. God is with you, and you will conceive and bear a son, and his name is Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Why? Because no matter how long it takes, God always keeps His promises. Can you say amen to that? Turn to your neighbor and tell him, God always keeps His promises. I don't know what you're facing, and I don't know how long you've been facing it, but I can tell you this, if you are a child of God, do not grow weary in doing well, for you will reap if you faint not in Jesus' name. No matter how long it takes, it doesn't matter if it takes years, it doesn't matter if it takes decades, God always keeps His promises. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 3 says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, yet at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come. It will not tarry. The other day as I was reading this, I thought, wait a minute, that almost sounds like a contradiction because he says in one breath, though it tarries, wait for it. But then in the next breath he says, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So on one hand he's saying it will 
tarry, but then on the other one he says it will not tarry. Is he contradicting himself? No, not at all. What he's saying is that every promise is for an appointed time. And it may appear like it's tearing, but it's not. It's not the appointed time. But when the appointed time comes, it will happen and it will not tarry. And I can stand here today and tell you that there are promises that God has made to you and you haven't seen them come to pass, but you hold on because the appointed time is not yet, but the appointed time is coming for the glory and for the honor of Almighty God in Jesus' name. While you're waiting, do not forget what Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3 and verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, do not take matters in your own hands. How many of you have ever taken matters in your own hands because God didn't show up on your timetable? You need to know God is not running on your clock. He is not running on your timetable. He has his own timing. And so he says, it's good for you to wait for him, for your soul to seek him while you're waiting. It is good that you should put your hope in the Lord and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord because in the appointed time it will come to pass And it will not tarry in Jesus' name. No matter how long it takes, God always keeps his promise. Number three. Number three. Every time I read the genealogy of Christ, I'm reminded that no matter how scandalous, God still loves people. No matter how scandalous, God still loves people. You cannot look at the genealogy of Christ. (laughs) You cannot look at the family that Jesus came from, if you will, and not realize that this family put fun in dysfunction. I mean, they, they are the dysfunctional bunch. They were filled with scandal. And sometimes we just forget that. But there is enough in this ancestry to keep Ancestry.com and DNA testing firing on all cylinders till Jesus comes again. Whether you realize it or not, listed in the genealogy of Christ is a known prostitute, is a daughter-in-law who dressed like a prostitute. And let me just say, these are two separate stories. This isn't the same woman. There is a prostitute, but there is also a daughter-in-law who dressed like a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law, and she bore him a child. In here you have a king, who had an adulterous affair with a woman. She got pregnant, and he had her husband killed to cover it up. Right out of the gate, you have a man who lied to a king, saying that his wife was actually his sister. The king unknowingly took the woman into his harem and would have slept with her, except God intervened, put the fear of God in him, and he went back and said, what did you do this to me for? There are scoundrels, there are liars, there are thieves all through the ancestry of Christ. And then you come to the end, and you've got Jesus, the sinless Son of God. Now, if that was your family, you would do everything you could to keep everyone away from the skeletons in your closet. 
But the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to keep it all in there. Why? To remind every one of us that no matter how scandalous your life has been, in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation in Him. And the old things are passed away and everything has become brand new. To remind you that he's not ashamed to call you brother. The Bible says in Hebrews 2 and verse 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't know how scandalous your background is. Jesus left his name in the midst of a scandalous family just to show you that in him he is not ashamed to call you brother, sister, and the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. Aren't you glad for that in Jesus' name? Bless the Lord. And then number four. Every time I read the genealogy of Christ, I'm reminded that no matter how difficult with God, all things are possible. You know, I don't know how many of you will take up the challenge to study through this genealogy because not all of their stories are told in the Old Testament, but many of their stories are. You can actually go to the prophecies and you can go to the historical books and you can read of their stories. And as you read them, you recognize how at times it seemed that there was no way that the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah could ever be fulfilled. And you see Satan moving, and then you see God counter-moving, and then you see Satan moving, but then you see God counter-moving. And, and there were so many times when it looked like the dream was going to fall by the wayside, but every time God just made a way. And there's one of those stories right here, and sometimes it's overlooked, but it's in verse 11, where you read of Josiah, who was the father of Jehoiachin, who's also known as Jeconiah. And his brothers born in the time of exile to Babylon. Now, I'm going to leave it to you to read it, but I can tell you this. Jehoiakim was a wicked, wicked king. And he was so wicked that one day, through the prophet Jeremiah, God spoke and said, This is what the Lord says. Let the record show that this man, Jehoiachin, was childless. He is a failure. For none of his children, listen, will succeed him on the throne of David to rule over Judah. God found this king so perverted, so twisted, that he said, I am not going to allow one of his descendants to ever sit on the throne of David. Now, the throne of David is the throne that Christ will sit on, that the Messiah will sit on. He says, none of his descendants will ever sit on that throne. So the Messiah could not be born through this man's lineage. The problem, Joseph was a descendant of this king. As impossible as it was, because if Jesus had been born through, this, through Joseph, he could have never been the Messiah. But God had something else in mind. The virgin birth. This is why the virgin birth is so important. 
Because had any of the blood of King Jehoiakim got into the blood of Jesus, he could have never been the Messiah. So God brought about a virgin birth so that he would be born of the spirit of the living God and could rule and reign upon the throne of David in Jesus' name. It may not sound like a big deal, but it just reminds you when you look at this lineage that no matter how difficult things appear to be, God will make a way where there seems to be no other way. And if your situation requires a miracle, well, you just happen to serve a God who can work miracles in Jesus' name. Don't despair. Don't lose heart. God will make a way. What I'm telling you is that life at times can bring you to the Red Sea, but God will open up the waters. Life may bring you to the fiery furnace, but Jesus will be the fourth man in your fire. The life may bring you to a flood, but you'll walk through the flood and you will not drown. Life may bring you up against some Goliaths, but God is going to deliver Goliath into your hand. Life may even bring you to the grave, but Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What I'm here today to tell you is, no matter how impossible life may be to you, God will make a way in Jesus' mighty name. Aren't you glad that we have a Christ who broke through heaven and came down even into our midst, into all of our failure, into all of our pain to say, I'm going to give you a new life. I don't want you to be a part of this family. I want you to be a part of my family. This is the hope we have. It says he came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passions or plan, but a birth that comes from Almighty God. Your mama and your daddy might have got together one day and they may have decided to have you. They may not have decided to have you. And you may be here today thinking my life is a mess, but I want you to know that you're no longer you're just a member of that family by the grace of God you're a member of God's family in Jesus name because as many as believed upon him gave me the right to be the children of almighty God and that's why Paul said so you have not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves instead you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children now we call him Abba Father for the spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children and since we are his children we are his heirs in fact together with Christ we are heirs of God's glory but if we are to share in his glory we must also share in his sufferings yes life is hard. You may suffer a little bit, but it is worth it all when you know that you are a child of the living God Almighty. And in the darkest moments of your life, the Spirit is going to bear witness with your spirit. You're my son. You're my daughter. We are brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. And the best is yet to come in glory in Jesus' mighty name. Can you give him all the praise in this house? And that's why Paul said, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You know, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn 
um, or, or the, uh, the first fruits, if you will, of the resurrection. He's the first one to come out of the grave and to start a new family. And now if we are raised by the same spirit, we are the children of the living God Almighty. And so he says to us today, bring to me your broken family. You bring to me your wasted years. You bring to me your scandalous past wrecked with sin. You bring to me your impossible situations because my life is wonderful in Jesus' mighty name. That's the hope of our Christmas season to the glory of his great name. Would you give him praise in this house here this morning? Amen. I'd like to have every head bowed and every eye closed and I just, before we go even any further with this, can you just, those of you that you know that Christ is your Savior and Lord, can you just give him all the praise in this house? Thank him for his...